0: We're going to move forward into our storyteller series. Today, we're going to be talking about transparency. And we're going to be reading this morning out of Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And this is um, probably, it may be a weird passage, just right off the top, um, to try to bring out a topic of transparency. But just bear with me as we move forward here, and I promise it'll make sense. So, Mark 8, Verses 27 through 38. If you have the U-Version app, you can find our event on the more settings in the Uversion app. Find our event, and it'll be up on there as well. Let's read. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what do you say, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So, just to walk through that passage a little bit, right? We see that Jesus here is revealing the purpose and the plan for his life disciples for the first time here he's revealing it and he's speaking very plainly right he's he's many times tried to mention this sort of thing but they never really caught on right they never really understood what exactly was going on and here he's just laying it all out very plainly this is exactly what's going to happen and of course the disciples are upset about this news right um they're still thinking that jesus is going to conquer the romans That's what they expected the Messiah to do, and they're still expecting that. So to hear him say things like, yeah, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be killed. And they're saying, well, that's not possible. That's literally not possible, Jesus. Why would you even say that sort of a thing, right? Because in their minds, right, they've, they've already seen Jesus calm a storm and raise the dead. So what's an army? You know what I mean? Like... They've seen the waves calm in a word, so like an army is nothing to them. So they're like, why is this? Why? Why? Why would you even allow yourself to be captured? Like you have the power to do all these things, right? So, but Jesus, he's speaking honestly to them, and he asks them not to tell anyone after this point, right? But then Peter responds, and his response to Jesus is to just essentially say, "No way." Jesus, there's no way that's supposed to happen. No, that's never going to happen to you. That's exactly pretty much what he says, right? Like, in our words, Jesus, come on. Absolutely not. No way will that ever happen to you. You are the Messiah. Absolutely not. Now, was that a terrible thing for Peter to say? If you were in Peter's shoes, wouldn't you probably said the same thing? Right? No. Jesus, what are you talking about? No way! Nothing can overcome you. Like, what? You, what? No! It's not, a, a, it's not outside of what any of us would say, right? It's, it's just an overzealous person, right, trying to encourage their friend. Like most of us would do. If somebody came to us with bad news, we wouldn't go, Yeah, you're in trouble. That's a bummer. Right? Like, we would try to encourage them. We would try to be there for them. We would uplift them. We would give them, like, hope right? Like, that's what we want to do for our friends, right? But Jesus' response to Peter here doesn't really seem to match up with Peter's intent, right? So Peter's like, no, no way, Lord. And Jesus is like, Satan, get behind me. Like, Whoa, okay, like, okay, like, sorry, I was just trying to be your friend. Like, and so let's, let's read real quick uh, in a little more fullness Jesus' response out of Matthew 16, it says Jesus turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns." So the first several times I read this in my life, right? It always seemed really harsh to me. Like you're calling him Satan, Jesus? Like what? Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block, right? But let's take some time at the beginning of this message, and we're going to kind of unpack just that statement before we we move forward, okay? So Jesus turned, right? He responds to Peter, and he says to Peter right away. So we see he's speaking to Peter. It says that. Get behind me, Satan. But he was speaking to Peter. Peter. Peter, Satan, what's going on? So Jesus is clearly addressing Peter, but he calls him Satan. So is Jesus addressing the devil in Peter or something? Is that what's happening, do we think? Well, that's what I assumed for most of my life uh, reading this passage. Is that like, okay, well, I guess like, Satan jumped in Peter's body, and that's why Peter acted that way or something like that, right? Well, uh, so I'm going to just take a couple of time, and we're going to break down the word Satan for us, okay? So this is like a pretty radical like shift for me in understanding of things, okay? So I just need you to bear with me as I walk through this, okay? So Jesus is clearly addressing Peter, but he calls him Satan, Right? Well, the word Satan, okay, comes from the Hebrew word hasatan, okay? And that translated is the Satan, okay? It's in the Old Testament, all over the place. Uh, In Job, right, when it's supposed to be hasatan is before God, and he says, hey, Here's Job, and like, he wants to affect Job's life poorly, right? All that kind of stuff, right? That whole story. Well, that is hasatan there, right? Many other times in the Old Testament, we read that word, hasatan. It's always the Satan, but we've dropped the the in our translations, and we've just left Satan, okay? So in Greek here, the word is satana that Jesus is using, but it's derived from the Hebrew word of hasatan, okay? Now... The direct translation of hasatan the Hebrew word which is not a name the Hebrew word hasatan the direct translation is accuser okay it's um, do we have it up there yeah accuser adversary and one who stands opposed okay this is not a person's uh, an entity's name satan is not an entity's name It is a title. Okay? David was described at one point by his enemies as Hasatan, King David. By his enemies. Okay? They called him Hasatan in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, The angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, okay, when he is talking to Balaam and the whole donkey, scenario. Anybody remember that story, right? The angel of the Lord is referred to as Hasatan. Okay? So that should shift our thinking in what is going on with that, with that word, right? Hasatan is not the title of the big bad evil guy, okay? Or that's not the name of the big bad evil guy. Satan is something that in antiquity, Uh, They painted a lot of paintings and they had a dude with red horns and a devil tail and a pitchfork and that kind of stuff, and even painted as the angel of light and those kind of things, right? Now, um, it's not to say that there isn't an enemy. There is spiritual forces of evil. Absolutely, no question, that is 100% true, okay? But we have created Satan, to be an individual figure, when really, in reality, it is anyone who stands opposed to the will of God. So you and I can be Hasatan. OK? Now, to go a little further with that, just to make sure, because I know that some of you are probably thinking, well, what about this and this, right? Well, uh, if we look at the word, the name Lucifer, okay, some of us might be thinking, okay, well, what about if it's not Satan, then it's Lucifer, right? Like, okay, well, Lucifer is a translation from the word Hillel, which is shining one in the Old Testament, okay, in Hebrew. It's a translation from Latin, from Hillel, into the Latin for shining one, which is Lucifer, Lucifer was the name of Venus in antiquity, okay? So Lucifer, again, we, we took the Latin translation of a Hebrew word and tried to stick it as the name of, the big, of a big, big bad guy in the Bible, okay? It's not. Lucifer is not anyone's name in Scripture, okay? I know. I know. Like, when I, when I read this and when I got taught this, I was like, What? Like, I have spent my whole life thinking a totally different way. But I need you to hear that, like, it makes so much more sense that that's not the case, okay? Now, it doesn't mean that, again, that doesn't mean that there's not spiritual forces of evil. It doesn't mean that an angel of light, that the enemy comes as an angel of light. That, that's a real thing. The enemy came and tempted Jesus, but we face a nameless enemy. we face a nameless spiritual enemy okay it doesn't deserve a name okay so i just want us to put that to rest for a second okay i know some of us might be like what but this is where we're at okay <laughs> so it's okay it's okay there's there's still the enemy and that's you you've probably i don't know if you've ever noticed but like i always tend to refer to what Many might, might say Satan or the devil. I always just say the enemy. Okay? When I preach for years, I say the enemy. I don't say the devil or Satan, and that's why. Okay? There is an enemy, though. Okay? All right, we're going to move forward. So, but again, it's just so important that we understand that anyone in opposition to God is that enemy. Okay? We are the accuser, we are one who stands opposed at times. Okay? So, Um, When Jesus calls Peter Satan, I want you to think of and shift our thinking into this. Like, he's saying, get behind me. You are standing in opposition to your teacher and to God's will. In those days, right, the disciples were to follow the rabbi, literally behind him. They were not supposed to go ahead of him. When, wherever the rabbi walked, they walked behind him. It was a place of honor because they were showing everyone, we are following this person. We are following everything this person does. We are following in their footsteps. Okay, So, Jesus is saying, Peter, you are standing in opposition to your teacher right now. You have got to get in line. You have got to get in line. Peter, you cannot lead me. Peter, you cannot lead me. If you're trying to lead me, all you have in mind is what's best for you, not what's best for all. Only God, only God can tell us what's best for all. And Jesus' number one priority was the will of his Father. And so I feel like a lot of times in this passage, at least for me, the full meaning of this encounter with Peter and Jesus is overshadowed, overshadowed by the Satan remark. And so I just want us to move forward now uh, with this understanding, okay? So I didn't want us to get caught up in this, in this Satan thing. I want us to be able to move forward understanding that this isn't like a that harsh of a rebuke. You know, Jesus isn't calling Peter the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, okay? He's just saying, you are standing opposed to your teacher. You must get behind me, okay? Peter's fear and control in that moment is what's on display, right? And so this is a powerful lesson for us, like I said, um, but it's, it's overshadowed by a little bit of a rough translation from Hebrew and Greek to, to English for us. And that misunderstanding of this encounter often distracts us from that vital understanding of transparency in our walk with Jesus. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. That godly transparency requires an authentic desire to model Jesus. Godly transparency requires an authentic desire to model Jesus. We've talked about transparency a lot in this church, and we've covered things like, you know, you can't force others to be transparent publicly or privately. That's just a truth. Can't force anybody else to do it. Right. All we can do is try our best to model the transparency that we hope others will follow suit with. Right. Uh, You know, we can talk about our core values as a church. All we want. Right. We can get up here and we can we can call attention to our core values every single Sunday. Right. And say this is who we are. This is who we want to be. Right. But um, we can't force them on you. Right. And and they're not going to be forced on me either. I have to make a conscious decision to want to follow along with what we say we are at Village Church. It should never be assumed. These core values should never be assumed. That's why we have to call attention to them. That's, how we have, that's why we have to call attention to the fact that this is who we're striving to be. It's not that we've attained them already. We're not a perfect church. Are you perfect? I'm not perfect, guys. And I'm not even saying, we're not even saying that those, those core values will be perfection for us but it's what we're striving for. This is who we know God has called us to be in this community, in this day and age. These are the core values of Village Church, but they have to be owned. They can't be forced. So if godly transparency requires an authentic desire to model Jesus, then this is how we do that, okay? We have to ask this question, how do we do it? Well, first, we open ourselves up to godly rebuke. That's what we see here, right? If we just read verse 33 again real quick, it says, uh, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So we open ourselves up to godly rebuke. So how did Peter open himself up to godly rebuke, right? Well, first, he was in Jesus' presence, right? Not going to get rebuked by Jesus if we're running away from him. We have to open ourselves up to being in his presence, right? He was in the presence of his community, right? The disciples were his community. Jesus was his community. And so we cannot give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, because we remove ourselves from the opportunity to grow. We remove ourselves from loving correction and rebuke at times. He was also willing to receive the rebuke. He was willing to receive it. You know, we know that this wasn't that harsh of an encounter with Peter because immediately after this, in the book of Mark, Mark is the Mount of Transfiguration. So they went from this moment right into that, where he's literally witnessing this insane moment, right? And he's trying to, like, just build, like, I guess I'll build some tents, Jesus, because I have no idea what else to do. But he's in this crazy presence of, of this miracle right in front of his eyes, right? And so this just shows, right? Like, he wasn't cast out in this moment. It was a loving rebuke to bring him back to where he needed to be. And that's how Jesus treats us. When he rebukes us, it's out of love. It's not out of a shameful thing, He's saying, no, there's more. You're just, you're, you're, you've missed it right here. Let me grab your face <laughs> and let me align your thoughts to what is right and what is true in this moment. Right? It's, to respond to rebuke is simply to say, I'm willing to be in step with Christ. And to ignore that rebuke is to go ahead of him at times or to fall so far behind that you don't see him anymore sometimes. And this whole episode for Peter, it started off with a simple question. Who do you say that I am? It just started with that. That question led to this encounter, this level of a rebuke for Peter. Who do you say that I am? And I would say that the answer to that question is the single most important answer that we're ever going to give. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter called Jesus the Messiah, which was correct, right? It's the first time that the disciples called him that in that moment, and he owned it in that moment as well, right? But Peter, immediately after telling him, you're the Messiah, but then he tried to tell the Messiah his purpose. So he owned who Jesus was on one level. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah, but you're this Messiah. This is the Messiah that I believe you to be. And that's where he made the misstep. Jesus is the only one who gets to tell us who he is. Amen? He's the only one that gets to tell us who he is. He sets the terms. He sets the condition of his his being Savior for us, right? He establishes his purpose and his work in our lives. We either accept him as he presents himself. Okay, that's our first and best option. We accept him as he presents himself, or we have a couple other options. You know, if we don't accept him, then the first option is we can just completely reject him. And many people make that decision. They hear what Jesus has to offer, and they walk away. Maybe you've done that before in your life. Maybe you spent a season rejecting who Jesus is, rejecting even the offer of who he is for you, and you walked away, right? I've done that at times in my life. I've tried to reject him because I didn't, I didn't know him in fullness, but I tried to reject him, and we walk away. But then there's this other option that we have, and that's that we accept it but we accept it on our own terms again. And we create this version of Jesus that we choose to follow, but doesn't actually exist. You hear what I'm saying? And that happens much more commonly than I think we like to admit. That we say we accept Jesus, but it's the the Jesus that we choose to follow. It's the Jesus that we have created in our lives to follow. This is the version of Jesus that I want to follow, anything else I don't want anything to do with. We do that just to make ourselves feel better. Maybe we go to a church that supports that version of Jesus. Maybe we read books that support that version of Jesus, listen to podcasts that support that version of Jesus, right? And there's all kinds of support for every kind of Jesus there is out there. And there's lots lots of different versions, so many. That's why it's so vital that we open ourselves up to correction and to rebuke in our belief system, at least open ourselves up. I'm not saying that every single time we're going to hear it from somebody, it's going to be what we need to respond to, but we have better be open. If we close ourselves off, then who knows what we're hanging on to? Who knows what Jesus, what version of Jesus we're hanging on to, right? Jesus' name has been used to justify every sin out there. I have heard so many people tell me things that Jesus told them to do something that makes zero sense. And it's absolutely against what the kingdom would say. I've heard that so many times. Jesus told me to do this. No, he didn't. I don't know what Jesus that is, but it's not my Jesus. He would never say that. He would never tell you to do that. But we use it because what are, what's, what are we supposed to say, right? When somebody says God told me to do it, it's like, oh, okay, like, who am I to talk against God, right? It's like the ultimate, like, conversation killer, like, well, God told me to do it. Okay, you know. But we create and we follow our version of Jesus, and in doing so, we become a stumbling block to Jesus' work in our lives and in the lives of others. That's why it's so important that we figure this out. Because just as Jesus was a stumbling or as Peter was a stumbling block to Jesus, we can absolutely do the same thing. 100% be a stumbling block to others. And when that happens, we become Hasatan. I need us to receive that. Okay? I need us to receive that in this moment. If we are standing in opposition to Jesus and what he wants for our lives, we become Hasatan. That's hopefully should wake us up a little bit. I don't want to be an adversary to the kingdom. I don't want to be an adversary out of one mouth to the kingdom when out of the other I'm trying to claim to be an ambassador. You hear me? And I think far too often we we slip in and out of those two titles, ambassador and adversary. You know, uh, we have to welcome into our lives the voices that will guide us and correct our thinking, and we, but we have to also be careful of what voices we're letting in. You know, um, I don't say this to in any way, like, look at me in any way, shape, or form. It's something that I've had to learn to do because I have screwed up so many times in my life that I have found the importance of these things, OK? I have an accountability partner that's one person. I have a mentor that's another person, and I have a pastor that's another person. I also have a lot of confidence that in, in my life that I can go to and call and know that they represent Jesus, and I can trust the Jesus in them, right? So I have a number of those people. Um, I have a large support system that I have had to build for myself. And it has been absolutely vital to have them in my life in that capacity. I, have to, I choose them because um, I trust that they fear God above anything else, and so that I can trust what they have to say because of that fear of God. I choose them by their track record, by their actions, by who they, that, the fact that they are who they say they are. I choose them because I know them to be transparent with, with me, so it opens up an opportunity for me to be transparent with them. But I've had to build that up, and it's taken me a long time to do that. I asked uh, many times um, for people to be a mentor, and I was told no many times, just because they said they were too busy or whatever like that, you know? And that might happen to you, that might happen. You might ask somebody and they might say, no, I don't know. That doesn't mean you should stop, I just need you to hear that right now. It took me years to establish people around me that I knew I could fully 100% trust. And sometimes we're let down. Sometimes those people that we gather around us, brokenness enters into their lives. But that's why our circle is larger than just one person or two people. The disciples had each other just as much as they had Jesus. You hear that? So we've got to build that circle around us of accountability, a circle of trust where we can be transparent, where we can be authentic. That's why we offer tribe groups here at Village Church. That's what those are meant to be, a place where you know you can go and you can trust that whatever you're going to say will be heard, but you also uh, won't just be accepted even if it's brokenness. If you're trying to own brokenness in your life, you're going to surround yourself with people that will say, hey you got to get out of that. That's no good for you. Jesus has a better way. You know, in this last season, I've had to make a lot of impossible feeling decisions from a very depleted place, just being honest. And, um, and so in those moments, I genuinely sought the rebuke of those people around me. I would call people and I would start the conversation, hey, I just need to unload a little bit, but I also am asking you to rebuke me if you hear anything that shouldn't be coming out of my mouth. I valued that so much because I couldn't trust the decisions that I was making based on my emotions. My emotions were all out of whack. and So I had to ask people, hey, I need you to watch me, to listen to me, and be quick to rebuke me. Put me in my place, please. That's not an easy conversation to have. It's not a fun thing to ask somebody, hey, put me in my place. And again, it's not like I'm trying to pat myself on the back here. Please hear that. But it's a reality that we all have to have that in our lives. Otherwise, man, I would be devastated if I started following the wrong Jesus. And what if, if I start following the, long, the wrong Jesus, what's that going to mean for each of you? If I'm called to lead this church and I'm following the wrong Jesus, then guess what? Some of you might come along with me. And that's a pretty terrifying thought. And so I, as your pastor, have to welcome rebuke into my life, but I'm telling you that you have to welcome it as well. I'm not special, but I have to lead by example. So I'm telling you, I invite that into my life and I'm asking you to do the same Have you opened yourself up to godly rebuke? Have you asked others to help you be who you say you want to be? Have you done that? You can't do it by yourself. Don't try. Don't pretend to think that you can. That is a lie from the enemy. We can't do it on our own. That's why God gave us others again. The disciples had Jesus, but they needed each other as well. Well, next point. We open ourselves up to godly rebuke, and then, after that, we get behind Jesus. Okay? We get behind Jesus, and we saw that, right? Jesus telling him, get behind me, you who stand in opposition. Get behind me. You're being an adversary. Peter, get behind me. You know, Peter was trying to lead Jesus, and while that seems silly to us, it's something that we do all the time, isn't it? We ask God to bless our decisions instead of walking in the blessings of his. I'm going to say that again. We ask God to bless our decisions instead of walking in the blessings of his decisions. And when we ask God to bless whatever we're doing, we have better be careful that we're not trying to lead Jesus. You know, through Peter's eyes, the best thing was for Jesus not to die and for Jesus to stay with Peter. That was the best-case scenario for him. You know, And if we didn't know the rest of the story, right? I think we would all feel the same in that moment. right? Well, Jesus, the best version of things is for you to be right here with me, not to go and die. So why would, that, why would God want that? Why would God want that? But we still do that. We do that all the time. How often uh, do we fight for what we think is best for us? What we think is best for, and even what's best for those around us, when in reality we're standing in opposition to Jesus. By thinking, this is what's best for me. So it must be what Jesus wants. Be careful not to be hasatan. Be careful that we don't enter enter into that, right? If we want to live lives as authentic, real, transparent models of Jesus, then we have to live according to his plan and purposes and not ours. We can't do this on our own. Otherwise, we become a stumbling block to God's will for our lives and his will for others. You know, Jesus' words in verse 34, I'm going to read them again. These are absolute. He said, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. We must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross. And we must get in line. We must get behind Jesus. We must be willing to deny ourselves if we want to be an authentic model of Christ. So I have this story of a guy named Angus uh, McGillivray, and he was uh, in a Japanese prison camp in World War II. This was during the bridge over the River Kwai uh, scenario, right, that we've maybe heard about or maybe seen the old movie or read about or whatever, right? But this was the bridge over River Kwai crew, Okay, they're the guys who built that, and it was the prison camp that they were at. Well, that prison camp was made up of various allied forces, uh, the Americans, the Britons, the Australians, um, and there was a, a group of Scottish um, soldiers as well. Okay? And um, unfortunately, the, the conditions in that uh, prison camp were pretty awful, and so it became a dog-eat-dog environment where um, they would steal from each other, they would steal each other's blankets, they would steal food from each other. These are the allied soldiers would be stealing from each other in those conditions. Um, But specifically among the Scottish soldiers, they had a buddy system and they called each other muckers. And so in that buddy system, they would make sure that the other guy was taken care of. Their job was to look after their buddy not to look after themselves, right? Well, Angus McGillivray was like, uh, he was like the biggest, strongest guy in the camp, okay. And everybody, like, they they stuck the weakest guy with him, thinking like, you know, maybe he can carry this guy for us. But everybody assumed that Angus was going to be the last one standing, right, and that his buddy was going to be probably the next one to die. Well, as as time went along, Angus would um, would, give, uh, would, would go to his buddy who was very sick, very ill, and he would say, here's a ration. I found an extra ration for you. And he'd say, well, what about you? Are you okay? He's like, oh, no, I'm good. I, got some, I have some food. And then his buddy, somebody stole the blanket from his buddy, and so Angus brought him another blanket and said, here, here's a blanket. And he's like, well, what about you? And he said, oh, I, I got an extra one. It's okay. And he kept doing that, and he kept doing that, and one day Angus dropped dead from starvation, from exhaustion. And in that moment, right, that seems like, what the heck? What a tragedy. Why? Why not just, you could have shared the ration, could have given a little bit to him, and he was going to die anyway probably, right? But here's what happened. Word spread about what happened in that situation. And people began to be inspired because, again, they were like, how could Angus be the one? There's no way. How in the world is he the one that died? Well, his fellow mucker that he was taking care of started to get better. And the camp started to talk amongst themselves. And they started a church. And they called the church a church without walls. And there was an instrument maker that was a soldier. And he made instruments. And they formed a worship team. And they started a church, and the, the Japanese, uh, some of the Japanese guards started to attend the church. And there was a professor, and there was a doctor in the crew as well. And they made a university, and they made a hospital, and they made a, a library system. And that camp was completely transformed because of Angus's sacrifice. And it didn't only transform their lives, right? Japanese guards' lives were transformed as well. All because Angus denied himself. And man, you think about that verse, greater love has no man than this, than to give his life for his friends. Mm -hmm. Now, God isn't asking us all to starve ourselves and to die of exhaustion, right? We don't live in those conditions, But he's asking us to lay down our selfishness. He's asking us to lay down our pride in thinking that we know what's best. He's asking us to surrender every bit of how we think things should be and simply get behind him and what he's doing. You know, if we get out in front of Jesus, (laughs) then we've lost all direction and and we become the one lost sheep from the 99. That's what happens. He's a good shepherd, and he's worth following. And if we want to be authentic models of Jesus, then we've got to get behind Jesus. So I want to ask this question as we wrap up here. And I'd love just, if you would just close your eyes, and as I ask this question, if you would just take a moment to reflect on this question for yourself. Are you trying to lead Jesus in any areas of your life? Are you trying to lead Jesus in any areas of your life? And if so, are you willing to get behind him? Are you willing? I know that in each of your hearts... You want to be a friend of Jesus. I know that. And I want us to hand over the times when we haven't. And maybe right now is one of those times. Search yourself. Let the Holy Spirit do his work in this moment. Let him speak to you. you may be inadvertently being an adversary to your Savior. Holy Spirit, search us. You know us. Rebuke us, correct us. Jesus, we want to be in step with you. Don't let us fall behind, Jesus. We want to be your friend.